The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I want to take you to a time in history, a time in world history, a couple generations ago, when it was a, it was a desperate time, a significant time, but it was also a time when, because of probably the significance and the gravity of that moment, there were these real deeply inspiring um, moments that came out, inspiring works that came out. And it's that era around World War II. In fact, um, to give you a couple, I'm gonna give you a couple examples. Let me just start with this one. One example is that um, in the last several years, at the closing of the 20th century, they were pursuing what was the greatest song of the entire 20th century, that 100 years, what was the most influential song And the vote came out that it was the song sung by Judy Garland, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Now, that's amazing. I mean, a lot of songs came out of that 100 years. I mean, that's that's the 100 years we had vanilla ice given to us, okay? So, I mean, that's saying a lot, okay, that Judy Garland, I mean, got the top billing, all right? So, a lot of songs came out, but that song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Now, you might be thinking, okay, why that song? Because at the time that that song came out, right at the end of the 1930s, of course, in connection with the movie The Wizard of Oz, that became almost an anthem throughout the, the English-speaking world for this hope in the midst of this very dreary kind of black and white world full of terrors and horrors and fears. It was linked to this story that was just hoping that somehow on the other side of all of it, there would be this really vibrant, full-color world that would, that would be achieved. In fact, even uh, Judy Garland went actually to the front lines and sang before uh, the troops. I think we have a picture of that as well. She actually sang it to the troops. It became such a moving moment that stirred up hope. So that song became an incredible moment, ins- inspiring hope. But it wasn't just music that was inspiring. Let me show you a piece of art from that time period, and I bet you've seen it before. Go ahead and show um, that piece of art from that period. That's Rosie the Riveter. She became known as Rosie the Riveter. She's first uh, painted by Norman Rockwell and then uh, recreated like this. And this was during the war effort when many families, they had fathers, sons, most of the men of the household, most of the men of society were going to two different, all different war fronts in two different directions. And so many uh, women had to rise up, entered into the workforce doing jobs that traditionally they were not trained for and were uh, thought to not have even been ready for, but yet they stepped up and dug in for the war effort. And that one piece of artwork represents that inspiring uh, work in the home front to support what was happening, the fight for freedom around the world, that one piece of art. So it's a musical piece, piece of artwork. But I want to share one final story. And this is actually um, a story from sports. It was the uh, 1936 Olympics. And before Hitler had risen to power, the Olympics had been uh, given to Berlin, of all places. So now as Hitler was rising to power and tensions were rising, Hitler decided to capitalize on the Olympics to show off not only his uh, power, what he thought would show off the uh, Nazi ideals, 
But he actually even had racist motivations underneath the service because he wanted to showcase his athletes and he wanted to showcase what he thought was the superiority of his Aryan race. And if I, if I got this right, it was the first Olympics that was uh, televised internationally. So they built stadiums, packed out with German spectators, and it was an opportunity for Hitler to showcase his ideals to the world. But there was one individual who spoiled Hitler's plans. He stole the, the show at the Olympics, won the hearts of the world, and even won the hearts of the German people. It was this man right here, a man by the name of Jesse Owens. He stunned the world, track star, won four gold medals in that Olympics. In fact, just um, about a, uh, just a year before, he was already, his fame was skyrocketing because at one college meet in the span of 45 minutes, in 45 minutes, he broke three world records and tied a fourth. And when he shows up at the, at the Olympics, he was treated like a celebrity. Well, he went on to start, and he began in track and field. He ran um, in the 100, the 200, and one of the relays. And he began to um, go ahead and show off his skill. He already had started to um, win some of, some of the races. But it came to his fourth event, which was the long jump. And he was pitted against the probably the most prized German athlete, a guy by the name of Lutz Long. He was the pride of Germany. He was the pride of Hitler. And Lutz Long, the long jumper, he, he focused all everything on this one event. He had one event, and so it was going to be Jesse Owens ultimately showing down against Lutz Long. And I want to show you how this story played out. Here's some, um, here's some actual footage from what took place. Check this out. The very next day, Owens nearly didn't qualify for the long jump. He fouled on his first two jumps. German competitor Karl Lutz Long, a model Aryan Nazi and Owens' stiffest competition, offered some friendly advice as to where to mark a takeoff point. This adjustment helped Owens qualify for the event and eventually garnered Jesse his second gold medal of the week with an Olympic record jump of 26.67 feet. Long was the first to congratulate the new record holder and took a victory lap around the track with Owens arm in arm. Owens said of this moment, you can melt down all the medals and cups I have and they wouldn't be a plating on the 24 karat friendship I felt for Lutz Long at that moment. Hitler must have gone crazy watching us embrace. The sad part of the story is I never saw Long again. He was killed in World War II. Jesse Owens had done his first two uh, his first two jumps, they were both penalized, and so he had one jump. And this is just pre-qualifiers. If he didn't make this third jump, he wouldn't get to, to show down, have the showdown between him and Lutz Long. And what had happened was, Jesse Owens later tells the story, Hitler had let, left the stadium to snub Jesse Owens. And it was getting into his mind, and he was trying to pull himself together, pull himself emotionally together, and he felt a tap on his shoulder. It was Lutz Long. This picture of what Nazi Germany was supposed to be, his arch rival. And he put his arm around him and said, hey, it seems like something's got in your head in his broken English. Encouraged Jesse Owens and then said, hey, look, this is just the pre-qualifier. Um, why don't you put a towel down a few inches before the marker so you don't have another foot fault? Just get in the competition, then we'll have our showdown later. 
He qualified, and then the final match, you can go down, look on YouTube, and see just how close it was back and forth between Lutz Long and Jesse Owens. It was like one would jump and the crowd would go crazy, then another one would jump and break some Olympic record, then the next one would jump and break that record, and the crowd was going crazy until finally Jesse Owens jumped a world record long jump that Lutz Long could not overcome, and the first one over to put his arms around Jesse Owens was his arch rival, what was supposed to be his arch rival, Lutz Long, and they took a lap around the entire stadium and became friends. Now, Jesse Owens said that he never saw him again, but they kept touch through the, through the war when Lutz Long was forced to become a Nazi soldier and eventually died during World War II. But here's what's incredible about that story. In a moment when the world is literally getting divided by forces that are trying to intentionally divide the world, in the arena of sports, an inspiring story plays out that shows what humanity could be. Here's why I'm telling you these stories. I want you to think, whether it's music, art, painting, design, entertainment, sports, there are moments that capture the culture's imagination, sometimes the world's imagination through these mediums like nothing else can. It's something that actually inspires humanity towards something greater than we dare believe. And so in these mediums, whether it's art or entertainment or music or whatever it may be, these design mediums that tell stories under the surface to inspire. Here's the thing. If these things capture the minds of humanity, if they capture the minds of cities and, and societies and whole cultures, then we as Christians cannot dismiss their power. We've got to understand their power. And if we're called to be city changers... We're called to run into these places, influence these places, so we can capture the heart of a culture. Okay, this may seem a little bit abstract, but I want you to hang with me here for a second. Because not only is this probably more, these, these avenues more important than we tend to realize, we have more direct influence in them, each of us, than we realize. And God tells us and demonstrates to us how important they are. He's not only an incredible artist and author, he reveals himself as that. He, his, this world is his artistry, but we're made in his image, and God uses this. I want to show you an unusual passage where God shows this. I want you to open with me to Exodus chapter 31. We're going to look at, at verse 1. Open with me, Exodus chapter 31. Just to kind of set this in kind of the biblical story, <clears throat> this is in the second half of the book of Exodus. Already, um, God has used Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. They've already crossed over the Red Sea. They've already received the manna that's sustaining them as they're wandering through the wilderness. And in this part of Exodus, they're receiving the law. Moses is receiving the law, so they're hearing how they're supposed to operate before God, how they're supposed to worship, how they're supposed to operate as a society. And one of the things he's giving them are the details of how they are to worship. They're right now constructing, he's just been giving them instructions on how to put together the tabernacle. The tabernacle is that tent that is like their portable temple. It is the center of their, their worship, where the Spirit of God dwells directly there. They go to that place for worship, and they worship through at the tabernacle until about 500 years later, 
uh, Solomon builds the actual temple. This is their portable mobile temple as they're moving through the wilderness for these 40 years and then on for the next couple hundred years. During the detailed instruction God gives them about how to build this tabernacle and the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, we have this passage in Exodus 31. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. All right, now pause with me just for one second. Going through this description of the tabernacle, how, what it's supposed to look like, what the curtains are supposed to look like, what each of the pieces of furniture, like the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, the table for showbread, uh, the, this big candelabra, all of these things that are specifically designed by God, that we're, it's going through how are those things are supposed to be constructed. And we get to this passage, and God says specifically that he has called out a man by the name of Bezalel. He's called out this particular individual with a very specific task. I mean, this is very strong language. It's almost like the language you'd expect God to say, I have called out by name Joshua to take over for you, Moses. I mean, this is very strong, very clear calling language. He's appointed a guy by the name of Bezalel. Specifically, it says he has filled Bezalel with the Holy Spirit. Now, Christian... Don't skip over that quickly. That is very, very significant. We sometimes underestimate the significance of that because we're so used to after Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven, there's a moment called Pentecost where Jesus, because he had washed believers totally clean, sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of believers, making our bodies like temples, housing the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, Christian, you might say, yes, it's an incredible thing. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. Don't underestimate how unbelievably significant that is. That is not the same dynamic before the work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. That is not the same dynamic before the Pentecost. What you have living inside of you is unbelievable. It should take you the rest of your life to continually and to a greater degree be awestruck by that reality that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. That's unbelievable. It operated differently. It was Specifically in the Old Testament, there were specific people like prophets and kings or moments like this with Bezalel where the Holy Spirit would specifically touch down in a unique way and work through them. What it's saying about this guy Bezalel, this is, this is a big deal. God's saying, I've set aside this man. I have filled him with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, did you notice? And I've given him intellect, intelligence, wisdom, skill, craftsmanship. He's like, I've, I've given this individual, I've given him a lot of gifting. This is a high-capacity individual. I've given him those things. And I want you to see, let's just pause. I want to take this rabbit trail just for a second. Do you see those two things side by side? Filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and deeply gifted. Do you see both of those things? 
Sometimes, Christian, we treat those things as if they're mutually exclusive. As if sometimes, you know, we, we know that passage in, in uh, the scripture where God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. That's absolutely true. There are definitely these moments throughout scripture. They're like these David and Goliath moments where it's the young shepherd boy that does the miraculous and slays the giant. There's definitely those moments, but sometimes we push that too far and it can feel like as a Christian, if I use my, the intellect that God gave me, if I use the wisdom he's given me, if I use the gifting he's given me, sometimes we can believe that then we're not, we're relying on those and we're not leaning on the Holy Spirit as if those two things are mutually exclusive. Do you follow me here? Sometimes we operate, it's like, it's got to be something that doesn't make any sense, total miracle, we could never do it, that's the Holy Spirit. But anytime we employ our mind, we work hard with our gifts, we sharpen the skills that he's given us, that means we're relying on ourselves. Those things are not mutually exclusive. If he's given you intellect, if he's given you wisdom, if he's giving you skills, do all of those things, ring them out to the best of your ability, knowing that the Holy Spirit gave those gifting to you, he's working through those things, and then give him all glory on the other side because he's empowered to use through those gifts. When you go to work tomorrow, he's given you experience, he's given you maybe education, he's given you background, he's given you gifts, he's given you things that you couldn't have gotten yourself, he just gave them to you. You leverage those for everything you've got knowing that the Holy Spirit is working through them and then give all glory to God. I love that in this passage, he's not pitting those two things against each other. And know that the day will come where he may say, hey, I want you to take a step of faith because this time I'm doing something unique and it may not make sense to you. You may not be able to make sense of it with your own wisdom or your own intellect, but in this case, I'm working outside of that and I wanna work through you. But know if he's gifted you, he wants you to use those things. He just wants you to do it by his power and for his glory. You follow me? God has called out this man, man, Bezalel, and he says, I've called this man out. He has a special task. So, okay, what's it going to be? I mean, is he going to lead an army? Is he going to be, a, be like one of the judges? Is he going to be like Joshua's right-hand man? Like, what is such a big deal that we have his name preserved for thousands of years, knowing that he's going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? He's given wisdom. He's been given knowledge. He's been given these skills. What is it, this incredible thing that Bezalel is going to do? I want you to take a look at verse 4. This is the big thing that Bezalel's called to. <clears throat> to devise artistic designs. To work in gold, silver, and bronze. In cutting stones for setting. And in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. What's the big thing that God has set these men aside to do? He has empowered them by the Holy Spirit, given them all of these gifts. 
to work their artistry on these elements of the tabernacle that God has set aside. He wants them to be artistically brilliant. He wants them to be designed with excellence. He not only cares about their function, he cares about their form. He cares about their form to the degree that he's gifted these men by the Holy Spirit to make them excellent. So that when the people of God see them, their minds are stretched and dazzled and awestruck. He's trained them to work in gold, silver, bronze, the most precious metals of their day. He's trained them to cut precious gemstones. He's trained them to work with wood. He's trained them in all of the, all the artistry. They would have to weave curtains. They would have to make um, the, the robes and the garments of the priesthood. They were, they were specifically set aside so that the form of all of those things were brilliant and were beautiful. These are things that God not only set aside. He, all of these things God would command them to do with excellence and God set aside this whole group of individuals to do it with excellence. What specifically were they, were they making? Well, let's take a look. Uh, let's, let's wrap up this section of scripture by looking at what are these things that they were constructing. Here's what he, what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 7. The tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their services as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according that all I have commanded you they shall do. He says they're going to be building the curtains. They're going to be building the, the fabric over the tent. They're going to be weaving these robes. They're going to be mixing oils for the anointing oil based on the recipes that I give them. They're going to be cutting stones and working with wood and working with metal. And I'm going to anoint them for this task so it is artistically brilliant, artistically beautiful. Now, why did God care about that? Well, for starters, it was to draw them into worship. But underneath all of these things that God or, or ordained for them to do in this tabernacle, there was, a, there was a story that he was writing. Let's just take one piece from the tabernacle. It's the, uh, the altar. It's the altar where the burnt offerings are. I think we have a picture uh, of the altar. I want you to pick up this one. Yeah, just take this one piece. This um, would have been built according to the Lord. It was instructed they built it with acacia wood. And then they overlaid it with brass or bronze. It was a huge box. And on the top, at each corner, there was a horn. And on that horn, they would bind the sacrifice. So they would bring a sacrifice up. They would tie it to that horn. We don't know if this is exactly what it looked like, but something like this. And also on those horns would be where um, the blood was sprinkled on, on those horns. This would have been when you walked into the outer court 
of the tabernacle. There'd be a fence around the outer court of the tabernacle. Uh, only priests would go into the actual tent. But when you walked into the outer court, this would have been the first thing that you would have seen. Because if you're entering into the tabernacle before you can enter into the presence of God, you would have to bring a sacrifice to be offered before the Lord on that, on that altar. And that altar was available to God's people um, at all times, if they had um, guilt in their lives, if they had sin in their lives, they could bring a sacrifice to be laid on that altar. Now, why did God specify those particular details with the altar? Well, and, and for starters, I mean, why don't we have an altar? I mean, if God commanded us to have an altar and that was we're to put sacrifices on that altar and that was to atone for sin, pay for sins, if God commanded that, Back in Exodus and Leviticus, why don't we do that anymore? Because that altar and all of those pieces of the tabernacle were all pointing to one even greater moment. We don't bring a sacrifice before God anymore because there was one ultimate sacrifice for all times to be able to come into the presence of God and have fellowship and relationship with God, we need to come with the sacrifice. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ is our once and for all time sacrifice. He was crucified on a cross that atoned for our sin. It paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future. So if you have Jesus as your sacrifice, you are, your sins are paid for permanently. And praise God. And you can freely come into the presence of Almighty God. So why those details with that altar? Well, what's interesting is that altar was built with two substances overlaid and coming together. It was acacia wood, covered with brass or covered with bronze. The uh, acacia wood is, uh, comes from the acacia tree that would look like this. We have a picture of it. Um, this tree is significant because it's one of the few trees that grows in the harsh environment of the wilderness, so they would have access to this tree, but it is almost an indestructible uh, wood. It's a very hard wood, and it's one of the few uh, plants that can withstand the brutal, torturous punishment of the desert. And so they built it, they constructed it with that acacia wood, and then they overlaid it with the precious metal at the time, would have been precious to them, of bronze. Now, what is that communicating? Some scholars have believed, um, and I find it convincing, it's communicating that there's a dual nature of God. On one hand, the regal brilliance of being God himself. He's not only fully God, but he's also fully man. Who died on a tree, but his life was indestructible. And he's the only one that can withstand the harsh, destructive punishment that our sin deserved. And his body, even though it was destroyed, rose back again from the grave. Those two things coming together in one. He is our altar. He is our sacrifice. There's a horn on each corner of the altar. The horn represents, uh, throughout scripture and throughout antiquity, the horn of an animal is its strength. And so when you raise up the mighty horn of the Lord, it's the strength of the Lord because it would be God himself 
who would lay down his life and in his strength, even though in his strength he's the only one, the author of life, that can withstand death. And they would put the, on the very the emblems of strength around the altar, the blood would be smeared on those horns where they would bind the sacrifice because the sacrifice is the strength of the Lord himself to pay for our sins and overcome sin for us. And so for you, the first question, if you're gonna enter before God, what do you do with the person of Jesus? The ultimate sacrifice. If you're going to approach God, that's question number one. What do you do with the person of Jesus? I want you to see the artistry is telling a story underneath this. Do you see this, the altar itself? We could go through each piece of the tabernacle. The veil that would be sewn to separate the presence of God from sinful humanity but at one point was torn because God, Jesus' body was torn and opened up a way through his torn body to make us have a way to come to God. The, all of these artistic pieces are telling a story, God's redemptive story. What is this telling us? I, I want you to, what, what am I trying to say here? I, I want you to, to imagine this. God cares about these parts of our society and of our culture. He cares about these artistic design pieces. He cares about things like the gold and silver and jewels. He cares about this furniture that was designed. He cared about the design of the tabernacle. He cared about its architecture. He cares about the music. He cares about the storytelling. He cares about the paintings he paints across the sky. God cares about these pieces because he knows they tell stories that can inspire whole peoples, whole cities, whole cultures. He cares about those things. He cares about the artistic side of our culture because it's in the artistry that every culture is expressing itself. You cannot go around the world throughout history and find a culture that does not have music. You cannot find a culture that doesn't have heart, doesn't have art in some kind. You find in caves, they have paintings in caves all the way back to prehistoric times. Humanity expresses ourselves because we're made in the image of the one who paints the sky every sunrise and sunset. Because we reflect the one who splashes coral reefs with colors and splashes the fields with wild, wildflowers and the birds of the, of the forests and the jungles splashes them with colors. That same God made us in his image. And so as we create culture, we cannot help artistically creating design and expressing ourselves through those designs. But here is where I want to challenge you, Christian. We too often dismiss that side of our culture as secondary luxuries or secondary insignificant parts of our culture. When we can see in the pages of scriptures, like this one example, those things are important because they express and capture the imagination of a whole society. God himself says that he's writing, he's the author, he's writing every page of your life. God presents himself in Psalm 139 as an author of a masterpiece. To this day, some of the most memorable words of Jesus were stories he told, his parables, over and over and over again. 
It's those parts of our society that express culture and capture our imagination. And so here's the question. If those things matter, then Christian, two things. Are we running to those spaces and influencing them? Or retreating from the mess? Second question. Are we engaging them because you have you play a part in that space more than you realize? Here's what our culture does as it as it creates artistically, whether it's through telling stories, marketing and advertising, whether it's through design, fashion design, artistic design, architectural design. What our culture does is it leverages those pieces, whether it's through music or theater or film, it leverages that side of our culture for its idols. And it leverages those culture expressions either to make money, to generate fame, or to lift up the ideals of our culture that are lies. But can I stretch your imagination, Christian? Let's start on the most macro, big picture level. I want you to think with me, Christian. What would happen if all of the Christians throughout our city flooded those industries? What would happen if the journalism industry were flooded with Christians that were telling stories, that were not just preying on society with fear-mongering or slanted journalism to support whatever their political bent would be. But what if Christians flooded that industry to uphold truth and tell stories that inspired hope and unity and love? Can you imagine what would happen? What if Christians flooded into the space like the music industry and got deeply into that space where they, they, they fought through the messiness. And I'm not talking about they went into music and created a Christian alternative to that culture. No, they flooded into the culture and created with excellence music that didn't just appeal to the most basis, basic base part of humanity, lifting up an animal-like nature. But what if it flooded into the music industry? pointing to truth and lifting up messages that were redemption, redemptive and full of hope? What if Christians flooded into the artistic spaces, telling stories that drove humanity to hope? What if art teachers, what if we wrapped around those that were teaching the next generation of art, teaching the next generation of film? What if Christians flooded into the film industry and didn't just surrender it to the world to tell stories, the same lies over and over and over again, that if you just self-actualize, you'll actually find freedom, which is a lie, Christian. It's a lie that actually keeps you enslaved as you're trying to listen inside to the truths that are coming out of your, your broken and corrupt flesh, but pointed humanity to truths that were powerful and saving? What if Christians flooded into the film industry? What if Christians flooded into the marketing industry? You know, every commercial, every ad you see is telling a story and making a promise. And every ad you see, every billboard, every radio ad, every ad on the podcast you listen to, every TV commercial is telling a story, making a promise, and it's almost always built on a lie. It's almost always appealing to the most basic 
animal part of our nature, but what if Christians flooded the marketing industries to tell stories that were redemptive, to call humanity to something higher? What if, what if there were Christian uh, authors and Christian com comedians and, and, um, and Christians in every single part of entertainment lifting up, again, not the most base part of humanity to try and appeal to get more fame, to get more, more notoriety or more money, but what if they appealed to something that lifted up something more redemptive and more hope-filled? What would happen if Christians flooded those places? Man, it's in that space. We've, we've talked about Incarnation, we've talked about innovation, we've talked about industry, we've talked about integrity, we've talked about influence. But you see how humanity is wired? There are elements in our culture that inspire. High school student, college student, young adult. If God has given you capacity in those spaces, run into the mess under power of the power of the Holy Spirit and influence. But what about you? Underneath all of this, we're all storytellers. There are stories you uphold in the business that you have. There are stories you uphold in your family. What are the stories you tell over and over in your family? Are they the, broken, the stories of brokenness? Or are they the stories of honor that lift, that lift up and inspire? What are the stories you tell in your company? Are they stories to honor someone who might be overlooked? Do you lift up the, do you, do you tell the right stories over and over to inspire those people around you? How about this? At the most basic level, do you realize, Christian, you have a story that God is writing over your life? If you know of no other way to leverage who you are to inspire, do you know your story? And do you know how ultimate, ultimately in your own story, Jesus is the main character of your story? Jesus is the hero of your own story. You're actually a supporting cast member in your story, which is ultimately about Jesus. Do you know how to share that story? Do you know how to leverage your life wherever you are to inspire? Do you know how to post online in a way that doesn't just continue the downward spiral into fear and anger and hatred of all of the messaging online, but do you know how to hijack those moments to bring about hope and love and truth? Do you know how to give your life for inspiration, to inspire people towards the truth of who Jesus is? I wanna just close with this thought. Um, Lutz Long wrote Jesse Owens from the battlefield. And while he was serving as a, as a soldier, and through his letters he talked about how frustrated, disillusioned, confused he was, not knowing how to navigate what he had to do as a soldier. But one of the most beautiful moments was his final letter that he sent to Jesse Owens, and here's what he says. He said, my heart tells me, if I be honest with you, that this is the last letter I shall ever write. If it is so, I ask you something. It is a something so very important to me. It is that you go to Germany 
when this war is done, someday, find my Carl and tell him about his father. Tell him, Jesse, what times were like when we were not separated by war. I'm saying tell him how things can be between men on this earth. His final request to Jesse Owens was to go find his son who he barely, barely knew and for Jesse to himself travel to Germany and tell him what humanity could be like and what their story was like. And Jesse Owens did. When the war was over, went and found uh, Carl, went by Kai, told him about his father. The family stayed in touch and Jesse Owens became, was the best man at his wedding one day. They lived out a story that God was writing, a story that wasn't hijacked by idolatry, hatred. It was a story that just stood for hope and truth, a story that God was writing and they shared. What if we gave our lives to inspiring those around us with our creativity, with our energy, with our storytelling? What if God used us to inspire and influence a culture? If we're going to do city change, he's going to use us to inspire wherever we're at. What if he called us to do that? You know, C.S. Lewis came to faith by his friend uh, J.R. Tolkien. Both were story writers. And what convinced Lewis one day in a long walk they took was Lewis said, I just feel like the story of Jesus is just so similar to all, so many other mythologies throughout the world and throughout history. And Tolkien said this back to him and it never left Lewis and actually led to him coming to faith. Tolkien said, it like, or Tolkien said to Lewis like this on a long walk late into the night. He said, what if it's sound, the message of the gospel sounds similar to you of so many other stories you've heard? Because every story you've ever heard comes from a place in humanity that's longing for one ultimate redemptive story to be true. And the story of Jesus is that one story we're all longing for. It's the self-sacrificing hero that slays the dragon and wins his bride because of a love that cannot be quenched. That's the story of Jesus. Maybe your life, maybe you need to enter into that story and realize that Jesus gave his life and came to get you and to bring you forgiveness. If you want to step into that story today, I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? So often through your life, you've been probably heard stories where something deep inside resonated with you. Well, I believe it's because there's a deep longing for an ultimate story that God is writing. It has its crescendo and its centerpiece in the person of Jesus who came to rescue you. Surrender to that work in your life today. Put your faith in Jesus. If you want to do that, I'm going to lead you in a silent prayer right there in your seat. Just silently say this to Jesus. Jesus, I surrender to you. Thank you for what you've done to save me. 
I want you to be the centerpiece of my life story. I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your decision just then, I want you to know that's the greatest moment in your personal story thus far because when you turned your life over to Jesus. And so if that was you, what I want to encourage you to do is you can either grab your cell phone, if you're walking in line, grab your cell phone and go to cityrev.org faith. It's going to ask you a few questions. We just want to send you a Bible. If you're here, you can go to guest services. It's that table in the lobby. We would love to put a Bible in your hand. Just say, hey, I, I follow Jesus for the first time. We'll give you a Bible. You can even just fill out the Get Connected card in the seat back in front of you. Put that in one of the offering boxes and um, we'll follow up with you this week. Church, we're going to close with a song. It's a reminder that as we are being sent out in this world, we want our lives to reflect more of Jesus. And so let's sing this back to him. Be reminded of that truth. Would you stand with me as we sing together? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.